Himalayas Studios. Hey everyone, quick heads up. We recorded this conversation before everything went down at Gimlet and Reply All. And as I track this, there's a lot about the story that's still alive. So that's why you won't hear mention of it in our conversation. And you can find me reporting on those stories in Hotpod and Vulture. So, what exactly is a podcast producer? Hey, Nick, can you try that again? Just like 50% happier. Okay. Um, what about this? So, what exactly is a podcast producer? I love that. Let's keep going. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what a producer does. The title seems important and authoritative, and it's implied that producers make a lot of decisions. Could we swap this music out? So what does a podcast producer actually do? And how do you become one? From LA Studios, this is Servant a Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, a conversation with podcast producers CC Pascal. She's got a tape sync set up, so we're good to go. And Emmanuel Joshi. And I just sent him the invite for the recording session. More in a minute. Could I get a few options on that? More in a minute. More in a minute. More in a minute. More in a minute. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, Plug in and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. This conversation, examining the role of a podcast producer, is one I've been thinking about for a while because it's a question that lots of people have. So I was lucky enough to chat with two great producers who have found tremendous success in this field and who faced the challenges so many of their predecessors had to endure. But they're also working to build a more equitable space for new and -and up-and-coming producers. Cece Pascal is an independent podcast producer, editor, and consultant who's worked for shows like BuzzFeed's Another Round, Gimlet's Uncivil, and NPR's Louder Than a Riot. And Emmanuel Chochi is a producer and co-host of Gimlet's Reply All, who's also worked for Serial, he co-hosted the third season, and This American Life. So let's start off with the most basic question. How would you describe who a producer is? Cece? A producer is a creative problem solver. I think at its heart, it's like you have a thing to get done and there's no prescribed way to get from here to there, but you have like a a set of restrictions and you have to figure out how to navigate that often on a deadline. So how would you describe those uh, those restrictions? 
things like booking, schedules, uh, tools and materials available, like, you know, everything that falls under the heading of resources, skills of, of your, your teammate. Uh, like, is there a good collaborative structure that allows people to actually efficiently be able to do their job hmm. in the environment? Or is it kind of like navigating uh, a gauntlet maze or something, you know, like those things also matter, I, I think. It's like a relay race, you know? Uh, and so, like, producer, you do you do have independent producers and, you know, lone wolf sort of producers who are just out here in the wild, kind of like myself. Um, <laughs> but I once ran with a pack. And, you know, when you work in a production house, that's what it's like. You have a wide range of technical know-how as well as editorial skills to be able to direct a vision from mm. an idea or a pitch into some sort of plausible sense of ideation, you know, a, a, an episode, uh, you know, a, a digital companion piece, like whatever the end product is going to be that is part of your podcast package. So Emmanuel, you, you're run, you run of a pack now. Um, yeah. Uh, I think you've, you've, <laughs> you've you have for a while now. How, how would you describe Let's say to a, a person who is like new to audio and podcasting, how would you describe what a producer does? Huh. I mean, I think it's easier to talk about what a producer doesn't do. But I mean, I guess what I would say is like in every possible facet or part of making a podcast or making a show, like whether that's administrative, whether that's like idea generation, whether it's like actual organization and actual sort of like show running. Producers are the lifeblood and like the foundation of absolutely everything a podcast does, basically. Mm. I think that's the way I like to think of it. It's just like if you were sort of constructing a podcast like you were building a house, the people who are really your foundation, but also somehow your supporting beams, producers are there doing the things that make everything work on like all of our shows. Yeah. So so there's a possibility that you could you could equate a producer to being both the uh, architect, the contractor, the 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 person driving the trucks like that that's the basically or woman the foreman person. exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah totally totally all the things <laughs> so how did each of you get started in this business I came to audio production out of being an arts reporter, a print arts reporter. Uh, and I started working at a local radio station where my first job was as the editor of a radio show that was with this multicultural youth journalism organization. So there I really like honed like the editorial side of the production skill set. So, you know, gathering ideas for pitches, doing research, booking, writing scripts uh, mm. and things like that. And, you know, also handling like web copy and like social media, like anything that had to do with the communication about what the show itself is, how it functions. And then uh, sort of the directorial angle of, of how to book a show in a way to make the point that you're trying to make with whatever episode you're producing. Hmm. Um, so once I then went to NPR as an intern at Morning Edition in 2012, the senior supervising producer of Morning Edition at the time, who was who was my boss who hired me, um, noted that I already had a strong editorial skill set and that I should really focus on the production aspect of things, like actually cutting tape and, you know, mastering whether it was Pro Tools or whatever, you know, different digital audio uh you know, workstations that we might be using and just really getting a handle on uh, like live engineering productions, uh, being able to shepherd recordings in. And that also like is like the, 
I that's that's where the complex some of the complex problem solving can come in sometimes, uh, especially like because mm. like everyone will have a different setup and you have to like figure out if people are in different time zones and like this person has when I talk about like the restraints, you know, like whatever Susie is on like a boat in Alaska and and like in a different time zone and has to like connect with your host you know, there's like a third party somewhere that you need to patch yeah. in but they don't have a landline it feels so like there's a lot of like... fire a lot of firefighting involved in this <laughs> right, exactly keep the trains moving how about you metal um because you're now firmly in the narrative podcasting space um does that require taking a like a very different path or something when I first got into this business, I got into audio, like wanting to work in public radio for like public radio talk shows as like a producer. Like I was like a production intern. Hmm. That job as like a talk show kind of interview producer, I think is for public radio, right? It's very similar to, I feel like the job of a producer for like an interview to a show for a podcast in some ways where, you know, as a producer, you're coming up with ideas, pitching ideas for like what? the hosts or hosts talk about mm. or who it is that they're going to interview you're ultimately like booking those people reaching out to them writing interview questions prepping with hosts you're doing like a lot of the stuff that cc was talking about in terms of like writing the copy all that kind of thing you still do all of that as a narrative producer <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what i mean it's yeah. like you still have to do like the pitching and the booking and like that kind of work i think it's just what's different i think often what you end up doing as a narrative producer is what you have to do sort of once the interview's done you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Often the amount of work you're doing in terms of like cutting down an interview and what the end product is looks very different. Mm. Um, so when you're sort of like editing sort of like a two-way interview podcast, you're going to be doing, I think, a lot more work than people realize, right? It's more than just making an interview shorter, of course. You're, depending on the show, like trying to bring out certain themes in a conversation themes in a conversation that you probably beforehand have prepped. That's a thing mm. we do in like narrative like podcasting producing as well but also maybe you're looking at opportunities for music you're thinking about when the ad break is going to be you're mm. thinking about times where you want to bring in sort of like archival tape or like news tape to help bolster a two-way conversation those are sort of the building blocks of how we do sort of narrative podcasts as well except you know, depending on your narrative podcast, you're also like having to think about writing <laughs> um, and like what your host is saying. Um, but no, I think it's like often those skills are very similar. And that's why a lot of younger producers or interns who come over to the narrative podcasting space, when they join these narrative podcasting shops, we normally start them out by training them on just being like, hey, can you cut this two-way interview for me? Can hmm. you book these people? Those are just sort of like the basic building blocks of being a producer, I think, no matter what the job yeah. is. So what a lot of people who are new to audio may not know uh, is that as producers, you're often writing for someone else, uh, you know, like a host. What's that like? I mean, like I worked for a couple of years with Sarah Koenig, very, very much like a writer's writer for the radio. You know, she would mostly just like write most of her own stuff. But like in terms of giving notes as like a producer, like in a group edit and things like that, I'd often find myself trying to sort of like ape her writing in like small ways. Not that I could ever do that. Um, and writing like a version of that, that to be honest, back then was not that great and that she seldom used. Um, but now I feel like as a host and as someone who's like produced a little bit more, yeah, it is sort of like inhabiting the voice of the person a lot of it i mean is just being able i think it's a skill that any 
people who like do any sort of writing for audio pick up whether you're a producer whether you're a porter whether you're a host it's just like learning how to write the way somebody talks um and just like understanding that and just kind of maybe hedging it by saying oh something like and hoping that like they just kind of take it <laughs> because ultimately <laughs> as a producer i think you want them to take your note you want them to use your language and i feel like we say oh use something like as a way to not get our feelings hurt when inevitably the host like kind of rewrites it to sound more like their voice <laughs> yeah i think that's especially like when you are writing for hosts you know, especially over a long period of time, like sometimes their voices get stuck in your head. Like the, the first host that I ever had to write for was Steven Skeef at, at NPR's Morning Edition, who has a very distinct voice. It is not my <laughs> voice, but like I could hear it. It was just like me and Steve just jamming in my head. Like, <laughs> so it, it was great. And, it, you know, like, I don't know, like as a producer, like kind of what Emmanuel was saying about like, you know, you want to protect your feelings from getting hurt. But it's also like such a good little win when like your scripts get through unchanged and you're just like, ha ha ha. I know your head better than you. Like, I don't know. It's like, it's a, it's a weird kind of mind space to be in. But yeah, to understand not only how someone would say something, but I think like Michelle Martin is another example of a host that I work for where I, like, you just can't, like, she's just so singular. She's just, she has such her own voice that the best you could just do would be like, okay, well, here's this, the skeleton of like, here's the argument that you're right. making. Um, and here are the things to know. And it was almost like writing for her was more almost like bullet points than actual prose. Like, mm. you know, let, you have to let the magic happen. Coming up, what Cece and Emmanuel would change if they ruled the podcast industry. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Emmanuel has worked as a producer for about six years now, and CeCe's been in the game for about 10 years. And since they've started their professional careers, they both say that the most glaring problem to becoming a producer is access. There is this sort of chicken and egg thing in podcasting, specifically narrative podcasting, where it can be really hard to break into if you don't have previous narrative experience. Hmm. But at the time, in 2017, there weren't a whole ton of narrative shops. Yeah, it's one of those problems. Uh, You can't get the opportunity for experience without already having experience. Exactly, exactly. And so, like, you know, your opportunities were pretty limited outside of, like, being a perennial intern, which I'd already done. And I didn't have the resources to go to a place like Salt or, you know, do a bunch Mm. of, like, documentary study things like that. Again, is kind of a thing that is informed by, like, privilege and stability and, like, not just being an intern for for years trying to scrape Mm. by. So I decided to take that opportunity to just self-study. So what I was able to do was 
to create the beginning of a body of work. And then that's what I took to Gimlet to be like, okay, look, so I haven't worked on like a fancy show, but like, here's a thing that can prove to you that like, I understand the conventions of narrative. I understand how to build a story. Mm. Um, You know, I understand how to storyboard. I understand how, you know, scoring works and things like that. What about you, Emmanuel? What was it like for you starting out? A good friend of mine always has this thing that I think about a lot, which is like, for so long, I was just trying to get into the room. And then after that, I was really just trying not to get fired. And it's only now that like, I started to think about what it all means. Mm. And I think that's really true. And I think it is really hard to get into our business. And the way it's set up right now, and was set, for me, like, I felt like in a lot of ways, I, I definitely had a, an easier path than other people in terms of getting in. But even so, it still felt like kind of difficult. I mean, my way of getting in and just to the door was just as an intern, which people do. But like, I wasn't even necessarily the right kind of intern at first to become a narrative producer, right? I was an intern for for talk shows, basically. Mm. Um, and those were great because I did learn a lot of the basic building blocks of producing. I learned how to book, learned how to write interview questions. I also got to hear people live on the radio just kind of like talk to callers, mm. talk to people. So I understood who was a good talker and who wasn't and like how to kind of craft an interview. Um, but ultimately, I remember sort of at some point I had to make a choice where it was like, well... I have to find some way to like get the skills for like narrative stuff. Hmm. I think yes, you have your salts, you have your transom. Uh, and you're talking about the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Maine um, and the transom workshops, which teaches production and narrative journalism skills. It was like that in my mind back then. There were like a few sort of like, and this was like again probably similar time. You like I don't know, like 2015, 2016, when I was just sort of like, okay, I know that nobody would hire me <laughs> to do any of this kind of work. But I am interested in narrative stuff, mm. even just as a skill to have one day. And so for for me, I was not quite as brave or confident to be like, I'm going to make my own thing and learn from that experience. Um, or I wish I had been. I wish I had been. <laughs> I don't know if brave or confident were, I mean, maybe brave, but definitely not confident. You know, it was almost desperation you yeah. know, because it was so yeah. hard right it was like well, i have literally nothing to to lose mm. and at the very least i'll i'll gain some knowledge totally you know, about what not to do but, no totally yeah. totally and I, I think that's like a good point it was like you have to get that experience somewhere and the barriers of entry into our industry are so high that like yeah sometimes that's like just what you have to do is just make your own stuff oh until somehow magically you get a part-time gig it was like the people I knew who were sort of quote unquote making it at that point were people who'd interned for a while at different shops, bounced around, tried to pick up skills and wherever they went to do stuff. And then eventually it was like, oh, somebody went on maternity leave and like they covered for that. Mm. Or like, uh, oh, this the takeaway is hiring like a temp producer or something. And like mm-hmm. you do that for a couple of months and then like you would temp until you couldn't temp anymore. (laughs) And then you either became a freelancer or one of the places that you temped at, you you ended up working for. For me, I think I got super lucky. I was prepared to do all of that. But then I applied to the This American Life Fellowship after having interned at BZ. The whole point of that fellowship is sort of aimed at people, or at least was back then, aimed at people who... If you were coming from a radio background, you kind of just needed that one sort of all-inclusive apprenticeship experience to just like come out of it and be able to do the thing, right? Yeah. And so I kind of did that and just kind of treated it like a grad school where I was just like, okay, after this, I'm 
only trying to apply to sort of like entry level jobs and like sort of those sorts of experiences because mm. I felt confident that oh right like I'm at a shop where I'm working a crazy number of hours a week I'm learning from all of these really cool people in our industry and to be frank also connecting with people in the industry mm. and I think often for a lot of people they might not have the this American life experience per se but you might have a gimlet sort of extended either temp experience or internship experience that is like that for you or a, a pineapple or some other shop or you know it could be working on something of your own that like really really gets your name out there and somebody here mm. is like oh right we hear something and like here's here's the ways in which like we we'd love to work with you so what i'm hearing is is that even though it's easier to get your stuff out there uh, it's still really difficult to get a stable, decent-paying job with benefits as a podcast producer these days. Has that gotten any better or any easier? Yes and no. And what I mean by that is, like, I think, yes, in that there are tons of new shows, tons of places that want producers and, like, need us, even for, like, narrative stuff. Like, that's clearly a thing. And I think it's still a producer's market in that I think there are still somehow, not somehow, there are still, because of the barriers of entry to our industry, not actually enough people to do all of those jobs. Mm. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think, like, it's one of those things where it's a problem that the industry has created for itself. We should be clear about that. Mm-hmm. But, and I also think that, you know, while there it is a producer's market, there's always going to be a learning curve with newer organizations or places that are newer to the audio space on like how they treat their producers. Mm. I do think we are in the middle of like a pretty big sort of reckoning over what a good work environment mm. looks like for like producers across the board, no matter where you work. And I think the time will tell on like how that actually works out, especially for like large institutions, like the one I work at, but like, I'm optimistic. <laughs> I'm optimistic because eventually these are problems that you're seeing not only for producers, but ultimately for the places that would want to hire new ones. There are, you know, structurally a lot of challenges within our industry, like so many industries and in, in all parts of media, I believe, that have been touched by, you know, abuses of power and racial inequity mm. and, and all of the things. Like we have all of these diversity initiatives and, and I can speak from, you know, basically 10 years of being a, a diversity hire. There's all this question about how to get talent in. There's also the thing about how do we retain talent and how do we help talent grow? So you have all of these people from diverse backgrounds coming through all of these companies and getting these opportunities, but it can actually be extraordinarily difficult for them to um, remain because of the price is so high, right? Like the, mm. the, the time, the commitment, the amount of sort of like resources and like life structures that you need to have in place in order to really be able to show up and, and do your best work in the way that these places demand on this time cycle of having, you know, production is a rigorous, rigorous grind. Um, mm. And it's great when you're resourced for it. But, you know, at least in these sort of early years of trying to figure out how to retain and build, there's, you know, there weren't a lot of opportunities when I was coming up to have people in leadership that I could go to if I was experiencing difficulties at any level or any part of my job. Hmm. And it was only like with time that I've seen those issues begin to be rectified or at least begin to be acknowledged across these organizations. So it's, um, you know, but along the way, it's definitely contributes to high levels of burnout. I think so that's hmm. something that's huge within our industry that we don't really talk about because 
again, like the grind culture has become inseparable with, with what we do. Yeah. And there's also like, there's an emotional toll of that grind as well. As narrative producers, especially, we're really tapping in to our emotions all of the time in order to like make the sort of content that listeners can truly connect with, right? Mm. And I think that's something not to be underestimated as well, you know, and that can take a different kind of toll, um, especially if you're a journalist of color, you know, essentially working on the front lines of culture reporting and in an era of so much violence mm. and uncertainty, you know? Yeah. Mm. This is a, a very broad, possibly unfair question, but let's say... Um, your appointed like podcast industry czar. Yes. And <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. And you're you're put in a position <laughs> to at least implement some changes or policies to sort of improve conditions a little bit and just improve like conditions of producers a little bit. Flow, um, recruitment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. What would be the sort of top let's say two changes you'll make? The top two changes I would make in the whole industry, like to start. Yeah. I would, one, pay interns way more than we pay them because uh, I think the thing that struck me when I entered this industry that has never really left me is just, like, that the expectation is that actually you should be doing an internship as the first step in your career, like, as a, like, fully grown adult, whether you've come from college or you've come from an experience commensurate to that. Mm. It's just the idea that you shouldn't actually be starting your career with, like, an actual real job. And I think the sooner we move to that, the better. <laughs> um, and I think it would help attract a lot of people to our industry and keep them in who are just like, I think it's easier to justify doing an internship, one, when it's paid, but also when you're younger or like if you're mm. at a place where you're just like, yeah, you know, my peers who want to become engineers, they're also doing internships during college. I think it's harder to like justify that once you've graduated. I think that's one thing I would change. I think, like, the second thing that I would change, I think one of the things that's so great about organizations like Transom is that they've been able to be a bridge for a lot of folks. And then they've acted as that experience people can have between sort of like learning about the industry and maybe their first internship or experience in it and becoming a professional. I would love for there to be more organizations like that. If I was Zarina, though, I would say <laughs> uh, non-binary Zarina. I would uh, definitely focus on management training. I've been astounded the number of shops that like you get promoted into management if you're good at your job of being a creator. And I think mm. there can often be an assumption that that means that you'll know how to like manage a show or manage people. Um, and mm. that's not good. That's not true. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think totally. that like management training is something that like helps everyone and builds stronger teams where there's more trust. And hmm. so I think that that would be a, definitely a huge thing, like, like number one. And then the other thing that I would do is uh, more along the content line. Um, and, and when we're talking about diversity, I've in my observations in a decade of being in public radio and now podcasting, like one of the most confounding things that we do is, is how we approach diversity. It feels so like backwards to me. Like we're just mm. going to make the diverse content for the diverse people. And then once you, you have producers like making that content, a lot of times once it goes through editorial, it's like, but how do we make this understandable to, you know, this nice lady and the white lady in the suburbs with her kids in the back of the car, you know, mm. we're still centering white audiences and white audience experiences as the base when mm -hmm. we're talking about 
um, who our audiences are. And we don't actually name it. And so that becomes that much more difficult um, in terms mm. of just like being able to tell stories in ways that that really actually feel authentic to the communities that we're actually trying to attract as as new listeners. Mm. But the same way that like literature has had its, its movements to decolonize and really like, you know, have more of a comparative approach to the medium, I think that that helps make the medium stronger. And it's mm. And listeners, their expectations are malleable. They want to grow through their experiences of listening. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with challenging or, or presenting new paradigms that, you know, then frees us up from some of these sort of hackneyed conventions that often, you know, it really kind of forces us to focus more on the, the pain and trauma and suffering of marginalized people instead of the whole breadth of their experience. Okay, uh, before we wrap up, uh, last thing. Cece, you've been working on a book about podcasting and producing and all that, right? Could you tell us a little bit more about it? As you mentioned, I am writing a book, uh, Audio Craft, which will be out later this year through Routledge. And that's really exciting to me. Like, it's actually an academic press. And I was approached to write this title about two years ago. And uh, I was maybe about a third of the way through it before the pandemic started. And then, like, everything changed. You know, I was like, all right, well, the business model part, like, that's out the window. But what I was actually most excited about with this book was talking about all of these sort of theoretical underpinnings mm. uh, and sort of really discussing uh, and dissecting like the the cultural lens and like the formal aspects of podcasting that make it such an effective medium for uh, communication and and really just presenting like subjective journalistic you know narrative experiences so I've been really excited to just dive into that right now specifically I'm thinking about uh, an essay that I'm working on about a, a Black history of narrative audio, like how long have Black voices been on tape and how our sort of agency has, has shifted um, over mm. time in that medium. Emmanuel and Cece, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, um, I learned a lot from this conversation. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Servant Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at elias.com slash servantapod. The show is produced by Andrea Swahe, James Trout, and John Parati at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Elias Studios. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.